You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. This section of chapter 2, which is our second argument, we've had an exhortation to not, <laughs> to not ignore the great salvation. We had a short exhortation to begin this chapter, but we're back in the main line of arguments now, and it is explaining Jesus's relationship to people, how it is that he fits in with the rest of humanity, how it is, uh, quoting from the Psalms, he said, the psalmist said, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man? And son of man is one of the messianic titles from Daniel seven that Jesus particularly applied to himself. And I think if we take a a Christ-centered view of the Psalms, that we'll see in that passage of Psalm 8, though there's an application to all mankind, the Hebrew writer applies that particularly to Jesus. So what is man? And then what is Jesus? And we'll have those two things. And we're going to have it under four headings. And I know there's a lot here in this, but it's all of one argument I hope that we do this in one study tonight. But we have God's thought of man, and then Jesus made fully man. Then we see him suffering as a brother to be victorious for the brethren. And then in that, he shared in all things, even unto death. And so we'll have some familiar themes put together in a wonderful way in this second part of the argument in the exhortation of Hebrews. So let's turn to the text and let's read it. It's one section. It's all of a piece. There's a couple of breakdowns we could make of it, but let's read the whole piece. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But he has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Well, my New American Standard, I think, actually mistranslates that. It says you've made him a little while lower than the angels. I don't think the while should be in there. And most good translations don't have it. But you've made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he's left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we don't yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while or made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason 
he is not ashamed to be called or to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over or power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be like, made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so here we have this wonderful sharing of our struggles, of our situation, of our travails and trials. We have Jesus sharing all of those with us and sharing them in a way that he is victorious over them, but having fully experienced them, is able to come to our help. And so it's through Jesus, we find, we get to the position of the world that we should have had, the place that we uh, would have without the fall, the thing that Satan <laughs> took from us by deception, Christ has given it back. So having compared Jesus to the angels and then exhorted us about the great salvation, Verse 5 goes back and summarizes about the angels. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning whom we're speak about which we're speaking. So the things that are coming, these are not for angels. The things that are coming have been done in Christ, and they have been done for our benefit. And so the angels now will drop off. The comparison to those great beings having been made complete. We now turn our eyes a little bit lower. We turn them to humanity. And so it says he's testified somewhere saying, which I have to say, I think oftentimes it's the preacher's favorite verse, for when we can remember the text of a scripture, but not the number and verse reference, we can just say like the Hebrew writer said, well, it says somewhere. Well, here the somewhere is Psalm 8. And what a psalm it is. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God, or in the text is being quoted here, uh, angels, you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him roll over the work of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And so we think about this psalm early in the book, the eighth song in their Songs of Zion songbook, one of the early parts of the Psalter. And we think about those who had for so long sung these things in hope. And we think about what a favorite song this must have been. Uh, even we have some, many hymns that take from the uh, the beauty and majesty of the language here. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And what is man? What You thought of us? We look at the stars, we look at the sky, and we see everything you make, <coughs> these things so wondrous and glorious, and then you think of us. But we find it's not just us, but it's in Christ in particular that these things come to the fullness of the promise. Yes, we have dominion over the earth as mankind from creation, even though by the fall, we now have kind of a tenuous hold on that creation and tenuous dominion over it and a pretty poor record of stewardship over it, I, I must confess. But still, as verse 7 said, the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, we've been given dominion over that. And God let us, by his grace, be uh, the ones in dominion here, even as badly as I say our record of stewardship is. Having made in his image above all these other things, and so the Jews would naturally think, well, what is man that you remember him? And, you know, uh, Jesus uh, tells us that God does remember us in uh, Matthew 10. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Or Job uh, expressed almost his exact same thought in Job 7. What is man that you magnify him and that you're concerned about him? But then he also says, but that you examine him every morning. And try him every moment. Yeah. God does see us. God has richly blessed us. But Job says, your your gaze and, and your knowledge of us is crushing sometimes because you see all the wrong that we do. And so the Jewish singers of this song and those who are not thinking of Christ would take this just to be mankind's general dominion over the world. But we go to that messianic title the Son of Man, that you think of him. And we know that this is about Jesus. So this Christocentric uh, view of the Psalms, this is the one, at least for this psalm for sure, that the psalmist has. Because he says, we see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Namely Jesus. And so, yes, this there's a all-mankind, all humanity aspect to this psalm, but it's more true of Jesus than anyone else has ever been true of. We move from the general to Jesus in particular. And so uh, I think, as I say, I, I, there's a little bit here. I don't like how my New American Standard says, for a little while you may have known the angels. But if you're an NIV reader of Psalm 8, I think they miss it a bit too, disconnecting this link between this messianic title and Jesus, where the NIV says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Well, human beings and son of man are very different concepts, and I think they miss it there just a little bit. The contemporary English Bible, which is a pretty decent modern uh, uh, translation, not exactly a strict word for word, but pretty close, 
it says this, where I think we see the shift. It says, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. So there's certainly a bit of Hebrew parallelism in there. But somewhere along the way, we pass from the general of mankind to this Christ-centered view of Jesus as the one who fulfills this passage. And Jesus as the one who truly has the blessings and authority. So you made him a little lower than the angels. Again, as verse 9 says, namely, this is Jesus. Now, this verse is the one where I think my New American Standard misses it a bit. You made him for a little while. There's no time element in, in the uh, text here, I don't believe. Either in the New Testament or the Old Testament part it's quoting. is the ESV says, you made him a little lower than the angels. It doesn't add the while in there. I think that's better. But Jesus, <coughs> the one who was made less, the one who took on the place of humility, uh, the one who, uh, Philippians 2, uh, there the psalm, well, New Testament song, I believe, of, of, of the place of Jesus and his, his humanity and his suffering. Philippians 2, 8, being found... <coughs> Being found in the appearance of a man, <clears throat> he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And so <laughs> the one who came in the form and appearance of man, who humbled himself to obedience, even to death on the cross, the one here from Psalm 8, who became lower than the angels, Jesus, he is the one crowned with glory and honor. So because he did willingly become lower than the angels, because he did come and become mankind, because he did come and be with us for our benefit, he is given glory and honor above any that has ever been, that at his name every knee should bow, that all things have been given to him. You've appointed him over all the works of your hands, right? What's the uh, premise of the Great Commission? That Jesus has all authority. Everything's been given to him. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, that's said to be about Christ. Uh, That's a quote uh, that's also in uh, Psalm 110, that all things be put in subjection under his feet. And it's affirmed repeatedly in the New Testament as having been done and fulfilled in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And Ephesians 1, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of the church. So all things are subject to him. Now, the Hebrew writer admits it doesn't fully look like that to everybody, and through the eye of faith, uh, we can see it, but but others can't. It says, for in subjecting all things to him, he's left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not see all things as subjected to him. So he's won the victory, but we haven't seen the full results of it yet. Again, to 1 Corinthians 15 we go, he must reign, until he's put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy 
that will be abolished is death. So there's an enemy that has been defeated, but not yet abolished. And what can an enemy <clears throat> that still exists, though robbed of much of his power, what can an enemy like that do? Well, he can spitefully do many things, and he can still cause great harm. I, like just about everybody else in the last day or so, have watched uh, mournfully, sadly, about what the Russian army is doing in the Ukraine. And they're uh, seeing some resistance, at least. Maybe the Ukrainians can hold them back. It seems unlikely, and it's only been day one. But the Ukrainians are putting up a fight. But what would you expect to happen to the Ukraine if Russia decides to go all out against it. Well, we wouldn't expect two things to go too well for Ukraine, and we keep them in our prayers. But consider consider this. If back in my childhood, and uh, I've admitted a number of times I'm a recovering child of the 70s. In the 1970s, what if you would have said, in 40, 40 years or so, the Russians are going to have to fight a pitched battle to take back the Ukraine. Can you imagine the Soviet Union at the height of its power? Can you imagine them having to fight in the Ukraine? And that there was a fight put up against them? Nobody who was alive in the 70s or early part of the 80s, you can't imagine the evil, <laughs> the evil empire having to go back and reconquer a good part of its heartland, recapture the part of its empire where the most of its grain is grown, where the most of its minerals are mined. You can't imagine the evil empire having to go and fight for Ukraine to get it back. So the, the Soviet Union and the Great Red Army, that's a defeated power. But there's still remnants of it, aren't there? There's still ambitions of it there's still <coughs> some power in it. And so it can cause a great deal of problems in the region. And today, as we sadly watch the news, they're doing that. Now, think of that in relation to Satan, that he had the power over everybody. He held them in his power and his grip of sin. And who would take them out? Who can imagine Satan before the cross being defeated? Yet he was defeated. He was routed. His defeat and ultimate destruction is completely assured. But can he not still cause problems with the remnant of his power? He can. With those who decide to live with him and not with the Messiah? He can. And so, as the Hebrew writer says here, do we do not now see all things subjected to him? There they will be. They are, but we don't yet see it. But we know by faith it will occur. And so here we have Jesus, verse 9, made fully man to come do this, to come gain this victory, to come rescue and help us. Verse 9, but we, but we do see him. So we don't see, we don't see the full victory. <coughs> Pardon. <coughs> I'm going to go for a drink again. 
<clears throat> All right. So we don't see the fullness of the victory, but we do see Jesus, right? What do we... <clears throat> What are we supposed to do in chapter 12? Fix our eyes upon Jesus. So, we see him. We're to stare at him. We're to make his visage the thing that foremost fills our sight. We see him, namely Jesus, that one who was made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, <coughs> so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every man. And so here's Jesus, a little lower than the angels, by the gracious work of God, come to be with us, come to this station and estate that <coughs> is not his natural place, but the place that he took on to come and suffer death on our behalf. And to do these things, which he <coughs> had to do in the flesh. And so he took from Satan that which Satan had claimed. He gave victory and honor to his people. And he brought them to glory. Verse 10. For, <coughs> for it was fitting for him. For whom are all things. And through whom are all things. Go read Colossians 1, 17, 18, about the place and order of creation. The, cre <coughs> the creator made it. He made it for his purpose and his benefit. He graciously lets us share in it. The one that it was all about and the one who made it, he came and brought out of this, this terrible situation by means of rescue, he brought many sons to glory. And it says he was made perfect by suffering. We have a couple of statements here in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 about Jesus here being made perfect by suffering or learning obedience by that which he suffered, of Jesus experiencing these things. Not that he didn't know and not that he wasn't perfect already, but he came and did it. Not just that he cared for us and promised that he cared for us and swore that he cared for us, but he came and showed his care for us. He perfected those things which he had said in the actual experience of them. And so he came and suffered. He didn't come and lead an easy life. He came to help those who were in trouble and lived a life as a man of sorrows, lived a life that certainly appeared to be one of troubles. When he was an infant, his family had to flee persecution. When he was an adult, he was persecuted himself. He who came and taught us to love other people, loved them fully to the end. He who came and said, turn the other cheek, turned the other cheek. And so he perfected the, the teaching. He perfected the promises. He made them all the more sure and all the more certain. As it says in verse 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So we have here now this great equality. Here is Jesus, a little lower than the angels. Come down to be man and share in all things of humanity 
And he brought us our sanctification in doing that. And he's from the Father, and we're from the Father. And so it says, for this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call on us as brethren. We have warnings in the gospel. What if we're ashamed of him? But here, it's him who's not ashamed of us, which is an amazing thing because we're so much ashamed of our own selves so many times in life. But he's not ashamed to be our brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his friend. What did he say to his apostles when they went to go (coughs) raise Lazarus from the dead? Our friend Lazarus has passed. What does he say? He said, I call you my friends if you do what I command you. And he loved them. He laid down his life for them. He loved them to the end. And he made us in this way a fellow heir with himself of the things of God. He caused us to be adopted, to be sons of God. So he, the son of God, caused us to likewise be sons of God. Sometimes we see this dynamic in families where there's an adoption. And sometimes there's rivalry among the children, natural birth and adoption. Shouldn't surprise us. Oftentimes there's rivalry among brothers and sisters who share the same natural birth and have the same relationship to the parents where there's rivalry amongst them. But one of the bitter and terrible things when there's an adoption uh, present, as well as this kind of rivalry, there'll be the natural children putting down the adopted children and telling them that they don't count as much or or some other kind of uh, cruel insult. But here, it's, it's not that Jesus just doesn't mind sharing the inheritance with us. Jesus doesn't just mind uh, you know, uh, us being there as a you know fellow child with him, and in that sense, in an equality relationship, he's actually the one who went out and caused it to happen. Right? He's the one who sought out the brethren. He's the one who brings them in. And so, we have this quotation from the Psalms again. I just think about these Jewish brethren, and for the, the comfort for those who accepted Jesus and who had grown up in the synagogue singing the songs of the Psalms. And then all of a sudden they find out, you know, we were singing about Jesus the whole time. And also the shock for the unbelievers when they hear how their songs are being applied to Jesus, whom they rejected as Messiah. But Psalm 22, which coincidentally we studied just this passage on on uh, Sunday night, or excuse me, last night, Wednesday night. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. So here's Jesus in the congregation. In the midst of the congregation, he stands with the brethren singing the praise of God. Now, again, we know this is another Christ-centric psalm. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It uh, has uh, also... You know, I can count on my bones. They stare at me. They pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And so here's a psalm of Christ. And in that psalm of Christ, the psalm of the crucifixion, Psalm 22 and verse 22, was this statement again, I proclaim your name to my brethren. So Christ and the brethren in the congregation are one. He stands with the brethren when they sing praise 
to God. And again, and now this one, it, it, and again means we're quoting again from the Old Testament. But it's interesting. We don't know exactly which passage this one refers to because this statement occurs three times. Isaiah 8, 17, and Isaiah 8, 12, and also 2 Samuel 23. And so it could be uh, that of Isaiah's words, that I put my trust in God, or it could be of David's words, that I put my trust in God. But we have three different places this quotation, these exact words, appear. But the thing that's striking to me, not just that uh, it's a quotation from several places at once, but it's a quotation again of Jesus. How did Jesus live his life? The Hebrew writer here says, Jesus lived his life as a life of faith. Right? What was the great thing that Habakkuk said and that is quoted four times in the New Testament? The just shall live by faith. The great call of the gospel is to live a life of faith. Well, here, the author of the gospel, what does the uh, Hebrew writer say? That that one lived a life of faith. And then there's another quotation. This one we can narrow down because it only happened once. And that's Isaiah 8, 1 through excuse me, Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Behold, I and the children God has given me. That's a quotation of what Isaiah will do faithfully following God with the children that he was given as a sign to the nation of Israel. And so uh, there was children that were promised and uh, those children were assigned to that generation. And so again, uh, the quotation now applied to the situation of Christ and the brethren, that here is Jesus who has the children God gave him. So that we are children of God, we could also say, uh, using what the Hebrew writer says, we are also children of Christ, right? Which helps explain another passage in Isaiah 7, 14. He's an eternal father. So the son, who is our brother, in another sense, is our eternal father. Uh, and as the great uh, elder brother, uh, we, often, we know that oftentimes older, uh, especially accomplished and faithful older brothers are something of a father figure, uh, even in this world, to, to children, younger children, especially maybe uh, younger adopted children. But the figure of father and children is applied to Jesus, uh, as well as the figure of brother. So there's multiple figures that are in the prophecies by which we can explain uh, and, and are used to explain our close relationship with Christ. But he lived by faith, and now we, as his, his children, are to live by faith as well. So that's why he had to come to earth and be with us. So he could be these things to us, that he could fulfill these promises and these prophecies. And this next section, uh, well, this whole section, but the, the verses coming up, are as good a commentary on why we go to first uh, chapter of John and we find out the word became flesh. Well, why'd the word become flesh? So he could do these things. Now, the Jews, uh, the unbelieving Jews, they never understood why God had to become flesh. And they took it as anathema that God became flesh, even though they sang about it in their songs. And even though the prophecies were there, they, they, they thought that's not the right order of things. But this is a commentary on why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and why it was that the Messiah had to be the suffering Messiah. This, uh, you know, Isaiah uh, 53, 54, 55, that whole section. The suffering servant poems say that the Messiah will suffer, right? He's going to take the stroke that is due uh, to the people. Uh, he's going to bear their sorrows. Uh, he's going to uh, uh, undergo all these things. And this is why. This is the rationale for that. Therefore, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, so since we're human, flesh and blood human beings, and you know we know the flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, but the soul part of us can, but we live here in flesh and blood, right? Our, our bodies are not just here to carry our souls around. Our bodies are not just here to carry our brains and our minds around. Uh, our bodies are here uh, to experience this world that God gave and to bring honor and glory to God. But, as it says here again, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. So he came to be with us fully and in every respect. And this was a great condensation on his part. Uh, this is a great coming uh, down to us. Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard, it equality, uh, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So he partook of the same, that through death. So he partook of the same all the way. He shared even to and in the point of death, that through death, because that's how flesh and blood ends, right? We're going the way of all the earth, right? That's what the scriptures say. That through death, he might render powerless, him that has the power over death, that is the devil. So death was the great thing that Satan caused. Having people live in fear of death was, and having them trapped in this system of mortality with until the Messiah came without the real hope of redemption from it. This was Satan's great power. And this is that last enemy that will be destroyed which is death, he, that he might render powerless him who has the power over death, that is the devil. And so this, this was Satan's great weapon, death and fear of death. This is how he trapped people. That great weapon has been disarmed because we know that Satan has been defeated and we have a whole different outlook on death. That's why the faithful don't fear martyrdom. That Satan's defeated, the battle's won. Through the eye of faith and through the promise of God, we know and can see the final outcome. Even if, as the Hebrew writer said just a few verses ago, we don't see it yet, but we know that'll come. And so that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So the faithful, even before Christ, uh, had hope in God that helped them, right? So like Psalm 23 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Well, in Jesus, we've got somebody who uh, not just, you know, guides us through the valley of the shadow of death. We got somebody who went through it. We got somebody who went through it and came out the other side victorious and said, hey, y'all come join me. We got somebody who frees us from the power and of sting of sin and death by the victory 
that he won. First uh, Corinthians 15, again, where that last enemy to be conquered is death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us this victory through Jesus Christ. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. If you read the King James, it'll read slightly different. It'll say, he took not on the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Quite literally, the text says, he took on, not angels, but he took on the descendants of Abraham. I think this is talking about taking on to help, grabbing a hold of, like you grab a hold of somebody who's who's drowning. You you reach out and you know you reach out and you grab a hold of them and you pull you pull them up. I think it's that kind of take hold. I don't think it's taking hold of his, their nature, but taking hold of them to help. Uh, although in the next verse we will get to his nature. So his, that's I think one of the reasons the King James goes that way. But it wasn't angels that Jesus came to rescue. Because some of them, well, because of their rebellion, they, we might think they need a rebellion or rescue too. Uh, but for them, it's just that you know certain expectation and, and, and uh, absolute certainty of the eternal darkness in the pit. Uh, but for us, though we might have been headed there, we don't have to end up there. Because he came to help. So therefore, again, this is the explanation of why he, you know, why he, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So there's some things that we don't understand exactly all of it. And why is it that we had to be saved by, you know, the, the death of Christ and um, some of the uh, unbelievers, they they talk about how barbaric that is and couldn't God have saved us any other way and the like. Well, here it says he had, it had to be. So I'm going to go with the Hebrew writer. This had to be, and we can come up with reasons why it had to be this way. But the Hebrew writer certainly asserts that it is. That to be with, to help us in this way, he needed to be like us in every way. And he was like us, in every way except for one. And that is that he did not succumb to sin. And so he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He was. He accomplished all the experiences of life that we have and up to and fully including death. And he did, and he conquered that. As it says that, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to God. Well, there's a hint of what's coming up later chapter 7 and 9, are going to be Christ in his priestly duties. And now he's the greatest priest that there ever was, and that he came to do that and to make propitiation, to cause a reconciliation, to give the sacrifice of atonement, to pay the price. He became the propitiation for the sins of the people. The stroke that was due to us, Isaiah 54 fell on him. And so he took care of the sins of the people. Uh, you know, nobody else could do that, and no other sacrifice could do that. We'll find out in chapter 10. Blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. 
we'll find out in the comparison of Jesus and the priest in chapter 9, the, the, the priest went in there to make sacrifice for people, but they had to make sacrifice for their own sins first. Somebody once said it's like going down to the courthouse to face your charges, and when you get there, you find out your lawyer's facing the same charges too. Well, that's going to be a limited help. It's not going to be able to help you as much as you need. And so he made the full propitiation for, verse 18 to conclude, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so he made propitiation for sin, and he can help those who are in sin. His separation from sin did not cause him to despise us who've all fallen to it, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That happens some when somebody has, you know, if somebody's run an obstacle course or uh, they have uh, passed a hard exam or they have done something that is difficult to do, sometimes they're not too sympathetic to the people who haven't done it yet, especially if they have a whiff of pride about them. They'll sit over there on the other side going, well, come on, guy, I did this. Why can't you? And they'll be disdainful of those who struggle with trying to overcome the things that they themselves have just overcome. There's none of that in Jesus. There's a humility and a graciousness and a help that his experience causes him to be more sympathetic and to give more aid, to give more help for those who are now undergoing those things themselves. So, in relation to people, yeah, he's, a, he's one of us, right? There was a pop song some years ago, what if God were one of us? Well, he was. He was. And what kind of one of us was he? The best one. He was the best one of us. And so uh, I've, I have in the past entitled this, you know, Jesus man and better than man. It is that he's, he's the superior man, but that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is on the uh, sympathetic man, the helpful man. It's not really gloried in or gloated that he's better than us. We certainly in our humility should admit that, but he, he approaches us now as brethren, as brothers who need help that he's more than willing to give. So in relation to us, what was it that God thought of us and why did God think of us? That's the question from the Psalms. Here that is applied to Jesus, that God thought of him because he came to rescue us and he crowned him with all the honors. He made him fully man. He had him come and uh, be fully obedient for the sake of those that he would redeem. And so now he stands in the midst of the congregation singing praise to God with the rest of us. And that's the great message and hope in Hebrews chapter 2. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.